Today's topic is Calvinism kind of in general, but more so the history, the timeline, what caused it, what did it look like, and then more or less, what was the result of the Calvinistic movement, the the Reformation? Because this was arguably one of the most important, whether that positive or negative, depending on your view, but one of the most important things that have ever happened in Christian history. It's it's very important. I feel like it's very misunderstood. So it's something to dive into. Each share will be roughly three to five minutes. I will rudely interrupt you when you have about 30 seconds left. So at that point, try to wrap it up. Once you've joined the event voice channel, join the event chat channel. If you're on YouTube or TikTok and you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm talking about Discord. That is where you can jump on and actually talk. So if you want to get in the Discord right now to get on tonight, go to tattoothias.com. In the middle of the page, there's a join Discord button. Click it, and then you're good to go. It doesn't cost any money. There's nothing like that. You just jump right in, and then you're all set. Request to speak in that event chat channel. Somebody in there will definitely help you out. The last 10 minutes, if we have time, which it looks like we probably will, can just be free for all. So whatever you guys want to talk about, random, doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about, that is totally fine. So the... The first thing I want to just throw up here is this right here. So this is a kind of quick just breakdown. And then it also includes a chart that I'm a geek, so I find it very interesting. But this is this is a little breakdown here. So you've got Calvinism and Arminianism. It says are the two main theological perspectives that deal with salvation. I would extend that to just the two biggest or most main theological perspectives at all. They're the, they're the most prominent theologies. Whether you know you're a part of one of them or not, more than likely, you are. Calvinism is named after the teachings of the theologian John Calvin between 1509 and 1564. I believe that's his lifespan. Arminianism is named after the teachings of the theologian Jacobus Arminius, 1559 through 1609. The Calvinist perspective has been summarized in Tulip. If you've taken any theology courses, whether you know paid or, or free, whatever, through a church, you've probably heard of Tulip. It's kind of their easy way of describing what do Calvinists believe. It stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. No corresponding acronym is widely used for Arminian perspective. So Calvinists have this real cute little acronym to explain what they do. Arminianists, not so much. Calvinism emphasizes the sovereignty of God and God's right to choose people for salvation. This is also deemed the elect. If you ever hear Christians talk about the elect, that is the elect. It's people that God chose to be saved, having absolutely nothing to do with their merit, their behavior, their actions, their faith. They were chosen. They had no choice. It was just is what it is. Two primary points, but I would add another one personally out of Romans, but they've got listed here Acts 13.48 and 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Arminians emphasize the ability and freedom of man to choose God. So rather than God electing you, God choosing you to be saved, we all have free will. Everybody starts with basically a blank slate, and then we have the freedom to choose God or to reject God. The this oddly the the verse they give you here is joshua 24 15 i i don't know why honestly i think uh this source it's it's karm.org they lean calvinist so i feel like they're kind of minimizing it there's a there's a lot of references to the arminius concepts within the new testament as well 
I don't like that they just put that one to the Old Testament. In Calvinism, God is the ultimate and deciding factor in the salvation of individuals. In Arminianism, a man's response to God's grace is the deciding factor. Calvinists affirm God's sovereignty over his creation, Romans 9, 22 and 23. Sinful man's inability to freely choose God, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. And God's electing and predestining, that's the other term you're going to hear, predestined. People to salvation, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, which is by God's choice, not man's. John 1.13, Romans 9.16. And that the saved are eternally secure because their salvation rests in Christ's work, not man's faithfulness. John 10.27-28. Arminianists affirm the sovereignty of man's will and the ability to choose God. That God's predestining of people is based on his foreseen knowledge of their choices that Jesus died for all people who ever lived, and that it is possible to lose one's salvation. So the, the, the easy breakdown of that is basically Calvinists believe that they have abs- that no human has any ability to earn salvation, whether that's through works or through faith. You can't earn it. You are either predestined by God at the beginning of time before anybody was even a thought to be saved. With that, you have to... You have to give it to them that in the same way, people were predestined by God to go to hell. They were predestined by God to always be separate from God. On Arminianist view, which there's there's a big spectrum for both, but the general Arminianist view is that you have the freedom to choose. Everybody kind of starts with a blank slate, and then we have the choice to come to know God And the general belief is that everybody is given the opportunity. There's nobody nowhere in the world that never hears about it. Somehow, some way, God will get the message to the person, and then the person within their free will can choose to accept or choose to deny. Okay. All right. So the the chart here, I liked this because it was easy to look at. It's easy to understand. In the left column, you have the topic over here, or the main point, and then you have Calvinism view, and then you have the Arminianism view. So the view on man, Calvinists believe in total depravity. Again, it's going to be tulip for them, total depravity. Man is completely touched or affected by sin in all that he is. In nature, he is completely fallen, but is not as bad as he could be in action, not all murder Oh, it's a side note. Forget that. Furthermore, this total depravity means that the unregenerate will not, of their own sinful free will, choose to receive Christ. So this total depravity concept is basically that as humans, we are just lost, No, basically no matter what. And that the only way we achieve salvation is one, to be elect, and that that happens through the work that Christ did on the cross nothing to do with us. We have absolutely no control whatsoever. The Arminianist view is free will, that man is totally affected by sin in all that he is, but with the prompting of the Holy Spirit, the unbeliever is capable of freely choosing God. With this too, Calvinists, I'm not reading now, but Calvinists believe that once saved, always saved, which makes sense if you believe that God chose them. Like you can't choose to go against God. With that same thought process, there's, I, I personally look at it like if Kat and I are married and she wants to leave me, I'm not going to force her, manipulate her to stay. 
Like she's a free agent and I don't want to be like fake loved by somebody or even real love by somebody that didn't have the free will to choose me. They just, I elected her to be my wife. Maybe she really does love me, but it, it's cause I decided with my magnificent power that she was going to love me like that. It takes away some of this, some of the concept of like a free agency in love. And it makes it kind of a tough concept with the Arminianist view. It's everybody has the potential to be in the relationship or to not be in the relationship. It's totally free will. You can, you can choose or you can choose to come away. So with that also, you have Calvinists who believe that once saved, always saved because God chose you. Arminianists believe that, and again, it's a spectrum. So some don't believe that you can lose your faith or your salvation. Some absolutely do. And I would, I wouldn't say it's 50, 50, but it's relatively close depending on who you're talking to within the Arminianist view there. So now election, unconditional election is the Calvinist view. It says God elects a person based upon nothing in that person because there is nothing in him that would make him worthy of being chosen. Rather, God's election is based on what is in God. God chose us because he decided to bestow his love and grace upon us, not because we are worthy in and of ourselves of being saved. The Arminianist view is conditional election. Election to salvation is conditioned upon God's forcing faith in the person. Again, I would add to that that within the Arminius view, and I'm not either of these, so I don't have any, you know, I don't have a dog in the fight. But in addition to that, the the idea is that everybody will be given the message of God, they'll be given the opportunity to be a part of the faith or not to have faith in what Jesus did and who God is, or not. And it's up to the person as an individual to either make the choice or reject that choice. Moving on to atonement, limited atonement, Christ bore the sin only of the elect, not everyone who ever lived. This is another really big one. This, these are huge fundamental theological issues within like the Christian church, because that's an essential belief. These, these are things that Christians should have conversations and have arguments about because they drastically change everything about the character of who God is and everything about kind of the way that Christians function. If Christ only bore sin for the elect, it means that not all people really matter, right? Because if God created all people on the planet, but only certain ones that he chose for whatever reason are who, did, who Jesus died for, that changes the entire dynamic of people on earth and how we interact with each other, how we interact within societies, it makes this huge, this huge gap between people who aren't elect and people who are elect. There were people who were born to literally suffer for eternity of nothing they did. They did nothing. And that's their fate. And then on the other hand, everybody in the world is who Christ died for. Everybody in the world has the opportunity to come to know God. And everybody in the world has the opportunity to reject God consciously and suffer for eternity. So it's, it's a massive shift. This is one of the most essential doctrine issues within the Christian faith because it's, it changes absolutely everything. Regeneration. Next one. Irresistible grace. This is interesting. The act of God making the person willing to receive him. It does not mean that a person cannot resist God's will. It means that when God moves to save slash regenerate a person, the sinner cannot successfully resist God's movement, and he will be regenerated. 
What does that mean? It means you don't have free will. It means you do not have any, not an ounce of free will. You cannot resist God pulling you in to be one of his people. You just are. You just are. And then it gets deeply philosophical when you really start talking about that. But if you guys want, we can talk about that here in a bit. Then the Arminius view, resistible grace. The sinner can successfully resist the grace of God and not be regenerated when God convicts that person. Again, just the opposite. Just the opposite. That is free will. It's a grace of God. God is giving the opportunity, the option to everybody on the planet. And each individual person has the choice to either take the gift or reject the gift. Every person has a is a free agent to choose or to not choose. Drastically different views, right? Security, last one. Perseverance of the saints. We are so secure in Christ that we cannot fall away. This would mean, again, you cannot lose your salvation. Once you are saved, again, not of your choice, not of your free will, not because you had a spiritual experience, not because you studied theology or studied the Christian history and then came to an intellectual decision that this is what makes the most sense and therefore I believe in it. Just because you were chosen before you were ever born, you were going to be saved. You cannot fall away from it. So the idea, again, like I said a minute ago, you cannot lose your salvation. Once saved, always saved. Perseverance of the saints. The Arminianist view, falling from grace. It is possible to fall away from the faith and lose one's salvation. So again, I already kind of talked about that, so I'm not going to say it again. But those are these are the main key differences between. There's a lot more, but these are kind of the fundamental ones that have, I mean, have literally caused small wars. So they're they're important. They're very important. Let me hop in here real quick. If anybody, if you guys want to jump in, just let me know before I keep going and then you forget whatever you wanted to get into. But Shannon, good to see you, Shannon, as always. It's good to see you, too. You're unmuted. That's beautiful. Hi. Um, okay. Well, yeah, cut me off. Somebody, Shannon, I'll keep you. Actually, Drew, are you muted on your end, too? No, you're not. Drew, mute on your end. Mute me. Mute yourself. Beautiful. Okay. So now you guys, if you need to cut me off, because I missed something in the chat or whatever, you can just unmute and cut me off. All right. Well, until then, this, this is the meat right here. I did my absolute best to condense things and make them as simple and short as possible because the, the, the entire movement is, it was a long time and it, and it had a whole bunch of different things that happened. So we're just going to try to like focus on kind of the key Key thing. So throughout the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation basically swept the entire continent of Europe. It, and the key thing that happened was it it's it absolutely wrecked the Roman Catholic um, oligarchy in a sense. the The Roman Catholic Church basically had absolute control from a religious perspective but also political and cultural. Like the, the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century was everything. It controlled everything. It was over everything. It made decisions about everything. And so what the Reformation did was it, com it splintered that entire system, ent entire system. 
this the reform saw millions of European citizens abandon the Catholic Church. And then what they did was they joined all these different new jump ups of Christian denominations, most of them founded from these these reformed ideas, these Protestant movement ideas, but different churches. So th this is the beginning of the non-denominational church. This is when we went from having Eastern Orthodox and Catholicism to having an array of different churches. And in a way, super positive, very, very good thing. And in a way, extremely negative. Because now at this point, it's who, who even knows how many denominations there are, tens of thousands. If you're going to be take the super dramatic number, it's like 42,000, 42, yeah, 42,000 different denominations. If you're going to take like legit churches that actually have serious following, it's it's like two to five thousand. But still, that's a whole bunch of different versions of the exact same thing. Right. It's it's odd. So positive thing came from it, but also definitely negative things came from it, too. The Reformation decimated the Catholic Church's religious, political and economic strongholds on the continent which irreversibly transformed the entire future of Europe. Because again, it's not a religious thing. It's religion, it's politics, it's culture, and it was economical. So the Reformation in Europe, in, in a brief summary, the Reformation in Europe saw the establishment of Protestantism, one of the three primary divisions of Christianity, alongside previously established, again, Catholicism, and Eastern Orthodoxy, which basically had all of Christianity within those two denominations for a very long time. It saw the complete readjustment of Christian fundamentals, dividing Europe between Catholicism and now Protestantism. It was not solely a religious event. Again, that's like that's one of these extremely important things to really like wrap your mind around. The Protestant Reformation was not a religious movement. It, it stems from religion, but it it changed everything, everything about the way that these areas were actually functioning. The entire landscape of Europe was altered. Now, a, a brief timeline. So the, the beginning was in 1517. You had Martin Luther, who wrote his 95 Thesis, which was a document that denounced the corruption within the Catholic Church. The 95 Thesis, if you've never read it, it's not super long. If you're not really into academic stuff, it can be kind of boring, but it's extremely interesting. So the 95 Thesis was in, in Roman 1515, Pope Leo was he he had this he had an idea where he wanted to renovate St. Peter's Basilica. So the Pope permitted the sale of indulgences to raise money for the construction project. What does that what does that mean? It means they were basically selling penance to congregants. So if a priest sold an indulgence, then the person who received it paid for forgiveness. So they were doing a fundraiser and the way that they were raising the funds would be the equivalent of if I came on Discord and was like, hey, guys, we want to, you know, add a bunch of stuff to Discord. It's going to cost money. So everybody get in a line. Tell me your sins. I'll forgive you, Joe, me, not God. Joe will forgive you of your sins. You give me money. Your sins are forgiven. 
so that we can rebuild our discord, which is, you know, our version of church, right? That's the equivalent. So that's what was happening. The forgiveness of their sins did not come from God, but was coming from a priest. And the forgiveness was coming from being sold. They were selling it as a means to raise money for a, for reconstructing St. Peter's Basilica. So Luther believed that forgiveness and salvation could only come from God, which now is a, a relatively general belief. A person could also buy indulgences on behalf of other people. One could even buy an indulgence for a dead person to shorten their stay in purgatory. Purgatory at the time, a solely Catholic concept. The practice was illegal in Germany, but one day Luther's congregation told him that they would no longer need confessionals because their sins had been forgiven through indulgences. Again, through buying forgiveness, through monetary means. Wild. Wild. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther went outside his church and hammered. Go ahead. I was going to say, Sarah had a good question. Oh, what is it? She just Uh, put it, that's where tithing comes from. Is that right? I don't know. uh, Not quite. Not quite. But I I think, I think in a way it's, it's become kind of what it's become because of that. So like tithing, I, I personally don't call it biblical. Because I, I don't believe it's truly biblical. You can find that one, what is it, Malachi or something, that there's the verse about that everybody will throw out about tithing in there, um, which honestly I don't understand. Because within the New Testament, you have a lot better examples of tithing um, with Paul. And like some of it we read in Acts, but tithing existed before, for sure, for sure. But the, the, the difference was like most people who kind of ran the ecclesia, especially back like during the New Testament, they didn't normally take money for themselves. Like, like when I was a vocational pastor, I got my paycheck from the church. That wasn't really a a thing. Um, Money didn't really become like a part of a church where like the congregants were funding everything until it was really mostly the Roman Catholic church that made that a thing. Otherwise like uh, pastor, what the equivalent of a pastor back in the day they would work another job. Like Paul was a tent maker. There were that everybody would kind of work some somewhere else for monetary needs. And then any money that came in would go to the good of the congregation. People who didn't have food, didn't have shelter, didn't have clothes. Like that's where the money went. So I, I wouldn't say necessarily that's where tithing comes from, but it's, it's definitely a piece, but no, like tithing was definitely much older for sure. But it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of it's an interesting question i i've never tied the two that's a tithing but no i i wouldn't personally say so but i could definitely be wrong that's just my opinion first fruits offering runs deep first fruits offering runs deep judaism god jeremiah <laughs> Uh, all right, October 31st, Phil, cut me off again if I miss some. Uh, Martin Luther went outside, I'm sorry, October 31st in 1517. So this is the very beginning. This is when it starts. Martin Luther went outside of his church and hammered his 95 thesis to the church wall, which sounds kind of dramatic, right? It, it really wasn't. Like it wasn't a really unusual thing to hammer some kind of notice outside of a building. So it's not as dramatic as it sounds, but it sounds like a pretty BA move. So he, he hammers his 95 thesis to the church wall. The theses took off from there and soon was translated into different languages. So like this was 
the beginning. This is when everything started happening, and it even made its way to Pope Leo. So the Catholic Church was the only Christian church in existence, really, at the time. There were no Baptists. you got to remember, no Baptists, no Presbyterians, and no Protestants until this beginning right here. The church, which again, at the time, meant the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, also provided all of the welfare programs in the area. So they, they did do good things. And it's important to recognize these groups of Christians who maybe are predominantly negative. They still did good things. So they, they fed the hungry. They gave shelter to the poor. They provided medical care to people. They did good things. The only education available at the time was also through the Catholic Church. So again, like that's good things. Faith was not the only reason people attended church because church was meant to be community. And this is something that I feel like we've completely lost. Church was meant to be what functioned the community, kept people safe, kept people in line, kept families on the right track, kept people who needed medical care in a place where they could have it, made sure people who didn't have clothes had it, people needed food, they had it. Still, in a way, we do that. But church used to be what the entire geographic area, what it was totally circled around was the church. Now we rely more on the government than we rely on the church. People who are in need will rely on welfare programs through the government. It's not so much provided through the church anymore. The Pope was extremely powerful. And in a way, you know, he still is. The Catholic Church owned one third of the land in Europe at the time. So in the 1500s, one third of all of Europe was owned by the Catholic Church. The Pope also had power over any of the kings in the area. And this is because the kings were thought to be appointed by God. And the Pope was a direct line to God. So kings were appointed by God. But the Pope was the only person who could directly communicate with God. And the Catholic Church today isn't super far off that, right? We, we go to a priest to confess so that the priest can go to God on our behalf. That's something that Protestants massively disagreed with. They believe everybody has a direct line to God. The Pope would advise all the kings in the area and could heavily influence wars and other political structures and struggles, which we've definitely seen throughout the history. Two of the main things from the thesis that are important, and then I'll move on. When These are quotes. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, in Matthew 4, 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The entire life of believers. The word cannot be understood as referring to a sacrament of penance. That is confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. So basically saying that his push was that we don't need to go to some special Christian to be able to communicate with the other side, to be able to communicate with God. Every person who is in Christ in some manner has a direct line to God. We, we don't need this extra party. We don't need these extra people within these positions of power. The, the 95 Thesis was originally a response to the sale of indulgences. Again, that's something that really pissed John Calvin off. He was not a fan of this. The other big thing was that the Catholic Church was the was the social, political, and spiritual 
power of the entire world at the time. He did not like that because it didn't seem biblical to him. It didn't seem like, where did they get this from? This structure is not in the Bible where I don't understand. And so he took issue with that. The 95 Thesis also was obviously the absolute beginning and the spark of what would become the Protestant Reformation, which eventually drastically diminished the power of the Catholic Church. He stripped the Catholic Church of virtually all of their power. So after that, that's that's 1517. After that, Martin Luther wrote three articles on the freedom of Christian, on the Babylonian captivity of the church and to the Christian nobility of the German nations. In all of those works, Luther argued that the Pope did not have the authority to interpret the Bible. Another thing that was going on at the time, and there are different historical accounts of this, so take it for what, a, what it is and don't get mad at me. The, the one that I find most plausible with everything I've seen, and I'm, I'm not the final say, so it's again, it's my opinion based on everything I know is that the Catholic Church would lit one, and you'll get a lot of kickback for this, but that they would chain the Bible to the pulpit so that nobody could take the Bible home. The other thing, and the more the the much harder to argue with thing, is that they were all in Latin, and most of the people did not speak Latin, nor could they read Latin. So what they needed were translations, and the Catholic Church refused to um, to fund the translations or even to allow them. So it all had to be in a language that the common person could not read or understand unless a priest interpreted it live for them. 1521, Martin Luther refused to recant the views he had expressed in the 95 Thesis and was consequently excommunicated from the church. 1522, Martin Luther translated against the Catholic Church the New Testament of the Bible into German. This is when things really started to take off for the Reformation. Then in 1526, William Tyndale, that should spark something in your head, translated the New Testament of the Bible into English. This was arguably one of the first, if not the first, truly translated to English versions of the Bible. You can find the William Tyndale Bible. It is one of the earliest. But that was huge, huge when they translated the New Testament into English so the common person at the time in the area could read it. 1529, Martin Luther and the Swiss reformed Ulrich Zwingli met at the Kologa of Marburg. Although agreeing on most theological points, they disagreed over Holy Communion. So that the issue these two dudes had was they were pretty much on par with theology. They believed mostly Calvin's view, right? That, that salvation was not through a pat or through a priest, but their issue where they butt heads was on Holy Communion. Zwingli thought that the bread and wine were, were symbolizing the body and blood of Jesus, whereas Luther believed Jesus's body and blood were present in the bread and wine, which stems from the Catholic belief, where it's, it's physically and literally the body and blood of Jesus Christ. 1530. The Augsburg Confession composed the doctrine of Lutheranism. So this is when the Lutheran faith starts to pull out, too. So you, you had Roman Catholic, you've got the Protestant Reformation, Protestantism, and then now you have Lutheranism also. So this is where the splintering begins to happen. Catholic Church being degraded and all of these different pop-ups now coming up. 1533, the English Reformation began when Henry... Mar when Henry's marriage to Catherine of Argonne was nullified by the Archbishop of Canterbury. We won't get into that because that one, that part is really, really long. 1534, 
two big things. The Catholic Counter-Reformation saw regions in Germany, Poland, and Hungary revert to Catholicism. So you had this Counter-Reformation that happened at a point as well, where a lot of people would leave the Protestant Reformation, and they would come back to Catholicism. So it's during this whole time, you have kind of like a spiritual war going on, but you also have, in a way, in a sense, and in some places, very literally, actual war going on between the sects. The Council of Trent was massive. And that's something maybe we'll cover in depth at some point. But the, I mean, most people have heard of it. Maybe most people don't know what it is. But the Council of Trent reformed the Catholic Church and refuted Protestantism. So what happened during that time is the Catholic Church kind of got their ducks in a row. They realized that people were on to them, they, that things like selling forgiveness was probably not a great idea. And the Council of Trent was one of these huge, massive, in substance, councils within the Catholic Church, within their faith, where they're like, guys, we should probably stop doing this. It's people aren't, they're not liking this. They're not taken to this kindly. Well, you know, the jig's up. Let's, let's tighten back up. So the Council of Trent was, it was, it was a good thing. It was a good thing. In 1546, Martin Luther died. In 1555, the Peace of Augsburg permitted Lutheranism within the Holy Roman Empire. So this is the allowance of the Lutheran of Lutheran worship, essentially, within the Roman Empire, which is a big deal. In 1598, French, French King Henry, Edict of Natus, granted religious equality to basically, basically French Protestants. So again, good thing. The Reformation and the different denominations popping up now are not so much hated by the Catholic Church. Part of this was due to size. As the, as the Protestant Reformation really started to blow, it got to a point where you couldn't stop it. And so what the Catholic Church had to do at a point was say, okay, we, we need to stop fighting this because all that's happening is one, we're losing, and two, we're just looking really, really, really bad. Really bad. So the Council of Trent happened. And then you had the granting of religious equality that happened, which took a lot of the heat off of the Protestant uh, group, as well as some of the other, like the Lutherans that were popping up as well. Okay, before I keep going, do you guys have anything, any questions, anything like that? Just a few more things, and then we'll open. I assume we'll talk mostly about the theology, because I, my guess is that most of you don't agree with Calvinism. And if I'm wrong, you can let me know. But I, I, I would be surprised. I would be genuinely surprised. I'll wait a minute. And then if nobody pops in or lets me know, then I'll just keep on rolling. While y'all do that, though, here's the, here's the four, four people that if you want to sound like you know something about Christian history that matters. These are four people that you should at least like know a quick biography about. Martin Luther. You've got John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, and William Tyndale. These were all the biggest people who caused the shift that changed absolutely everything within the Christian faith forever, forever. Martin Luther, again, had the 95 Theses. Then you had John Calvin, whose teaching stressed the importance of God's power and notions of predestination. So this is where the whole concept of the elect really got serious and really got big. Zwingli, he he was he was who taught that the Bible should be used as a moral and ethical guide in every aspect of a person's day-to-day -day life. This is also where a lot of the early American views came from with the founding fathers where they believed that biblical 
moral and ethical codes should come from the Bible. It started with Zwingli. And then William Tyndale believed that the commoner should be able to access the word of God, not just the fancy people within the Catholic Church. And again, he was the first one that translated it to English. Super important people. Then let me see. I think I've hit everything that's super important. I don't really want to blab anymore. Man, quiet night. I'll keep talking, but that's super boring. That's super boring. Here's a little bit more about the Counter-Reformation. You guys cut me off if somebody wants to happen. The Catholic Church was slow to respond to the Reformation's attitudes and figures. Again, they, they tried to hold out as long as they possibly could because they genuinely thought that they would be able to squash the movement, and they were wildly wrong. Between 1545 and 1563, the Council of Trent, again, super important to know the Council of Trent. That's when really everything changed. The... It, it was held as a response to the Reformation. The Council of Trent was their response. The reaction of the Catholic Church, known as the Counter-Reformation, saw the Catholic Church reform its practices and eliminate corrupt conventions. So that's when they got rid of the whole buying forgiveness thing. Not a good idea, guys. It's, you know, we, we got away with it for a long time. We got real fancy churches out of it. We're, uh, we're all well-to-do financially, but uh, people are catching on. The Counter-Reformation saw a ton of different progressive reforms, such as the ending, again, of the selling of indulgences. In other words, the buying of forgiveness. Then the, oh man, 1648, the Treaty of Westphalia, which allowed religious freedoms for Lutherans and Calvinists in Europe. Big, 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 big. If they were going to hold out on anything, with the hope of conquering the religious wars, it would be that. So allowing that religious freedom, it was, it was end of the game. Despite some positive developments, there were several adverse effects of the Counter-Reformation. The Inquisition saw the imprisonment, torture, and execution of thousands believed to be heretics, and the Index of Forbidden Books saw the suppression of literature that didn't tow the Roman Catholic line. What does that mean? What that means is that the Catholic Church literally tortured and executed thousands of Christians who just didn't toe the, the Roman Catholic Church ideological line, really. And then the Index of Forbidden Books was what saw the suppression of literature that didn't also toe the line. So any, any of these translations and any other literature at the time from some of these theologians that didn't fully align with what the Roman Catholic view on theology was. Now, some of the like, some of the pros to this movement, to the Reformation, the corruption, again, within the Catholic Church, most notably, the, the buying of forgiveness is so wild. The buying of forgiveness was finally outlawed. Positive thing, pro. The Protestant church services were conducted in the local language and Bibles were translated into English, French, and German, which made Christianity more accessible to normal people. Again, before that, they were all, all of the available literature was in a language most people could not read. And when they did the services, they would, in most cases, speak a language that they did not understand. 
so that any questions asked, they got to interpret however they wanted because the common person had no idea what the Bible said. They had tiny little bits and pieces of it, but they did not have access. So the Catholics had full control on what people learned, how they learned it, and when they were told what they were told. The Protestant Reformation led to the Catholic Counter-Reformation, which was that period of reform and revision within the Catholic Church. Super positive thing. That's a pro. The new Christian denominations, such as the Lutherans, the Calvinists, and the Baptists, were founded. as a pro, but it became a con, in my opinion, because we did what we do best as Christians, and we took something that was good, and we ran a thousand miles in the other direction with it and turned it back into something bad. It curbed the power of the Pope and the clergy and placed scripture and faith at the center of, of Christianity. That's a super pro. That's a big pro. Because I, I, most Christians, and again, I don't in, in one sense agree with Calvinism, but I very much appreciate that fact that now, at least much more than before, we are putting all of our weight into what the Bible says and what our personal faith is rather than what some dude, and all due respect, in a funny hat and funny slippers says we should do and what we should believe. And no, forget the Bible. Forget the Bible. What does the dude in the hat think you should believe about God and about Jesus? It, it got rid of that. Very appreciative of that. The, the big cons. The war that was between the Roman Catholics, the Lutherans, and Calvinists killed some 8 million people. I love, I love when we act like Christians are not disgustingly broken and haven't been forever. 8 million people died. Christians died by the hand of who? Christians. Because we can't, we can't, it's, I don't even know how to say it because it's because of arrogance. It's because of self-righteousness and arrogance, because only through self-righteousness and arrogance can you murder a bunch of Christians as a Christian because they don't quite agree with what you think the Bible means. When you're discussing a text where even at this time had been wrecked, redacted, changed, translated through several different languages already, Murdering 8 million people. Wild. Wild, wild. The event has come to be known as the 30-year war. Joe, will you discuss the fact that Calvin justified killing those theologians? Oh, God, something's cutting off. I think it's theologians who he considered his rivals. Yeah, that's it. But they all did. They all did. I'm not a fan of Calvin. I, I love what he did. I love what he began because it, it gave Christianity more freedom. Christians more freedom. I don't agree with his theology. Um, but yes, yes. But it's really, it's all of them. All of these key theologians at the time, the, the four primaries that I gave you a few minutes ago, they were all guilty in, in one way or another of this. But Calvin was one of the worst. He was, he was not the best guy in the world, nor was he really geared towards peace. He had a bone to pick with the Catholic Church. But at the same time, it's tough, man. It's tough. And it's it's not so different than what we're dealing with now, just with less murder. But you have these 
these fundamental people within the faith that have some kind of power and they're they're calling the shots. And what is it based off of? It's based off of their opinion. So eight million people were murdered because of somebody's opinion. Several people, but because of their opinions on theology. It's it's disgusting. Another con is the Reformation saw the, the establishment of the witch trials. That's what began that within Europe. The witch trials were most common in areas with strong Catholic Protestant rivalry. So it was basically, honestly, kind of an excuse to kill each other. And in many cases, they would wipe out an entire village, an entire neighborhood of people because there was a report of one or two witches. So hundreds or thousands of people were burned because somebody somewhere said that some witch lived in that area. So they just burned the whole thing down, killed dozens, hundreds, thousands of people. In response to the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church launched the Roman Inquisition. Throughout the Roman Inquisition, anywhere between 100,000 and 9 million heretics were executed. This is separate of the other number. Understand that. These are in addition to. That is an insurmountable amount of death based on theological differences. And the final con is the splintering of the Roman Catholic Church and increased denominationalism saw the end of Christendom and weakened the church as a political institution. And that's absolutely true. But in, in this case, it was a good thing because the, the church that had control of the political institution was the Roman Catholic Church. And then you wonder why they were so corrupt. Well, it seems like politics breeds corruption pretty much no matter what. It just it always has. It seemingly always will. So this, it's a con, but in a way, I think it's kind of good. I don't, I personally, I don't think the church should really be that involved in politics. I think they should be separate to a point. Again, we talked about in that one uh, call where the separation of church and state was not for the government's benefit. It was for the church's benefit. It was to keep politics the hell out of our faith. It wasn't supposed to be the other way around. It, it went that way, you know, not within, not past, past hundred years. Let me see if I've got any any more of these notes that are real important here. Some of that might be boring. Leviticus twenty four sixteen. All right, you guys are uh, good to go. I mean, I I can definitely keep blabbing, but what what do you guys think of Calvinist theology? That's, I guess, there. That's my question. You have you have the concept that once saved, always saved. I mean, there's a lot of topics here. Once saved, always saved. Do we have free will? Do we not have free will? Were people elect to be God's people? Meaning, also, that people were elected to burn in hell forever. And then my favorite one is... They also believe that absolutely everything that has ever happened in the world and anything that will ever happen in the world was predestined, meaning every murder of a child, every murder of a woman, every bad thing that has ever happened was predestined by God. Is that true? Does God predestine sexual assault? Does God predestine a child to get hit by a car? Because that is a belief within the Calvinist view that that is predestined by God, that that child be murdered, predestined by God. 
before that child was ever born at the beginning of time. I have a huge struggle with that. I reject that with absolutely everything inside of me. Cause that, that no matter which way you want to spin it, I don't care what anybody says you're implicating God in everything evil that happens in the world. I don't believe God who is literally just the essence of good is capable is able. It's, I don't think it's possible for him to engage in something that is evil, whether directly or really indirectly. I don't, I don't think that's possible. And I've had a lot of debates with people and I've never, and I'm very open-minded. I hope everybody knows that, but I've never been swayed from that. Every, every answer I've ever gotten just seems very lackluster, very lackluster. I can see the appeal and how predestination could be argued with Jeremiah 29, 11. Oh, you got the Bible thing to work. That's so exciting. Where I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and hope. But why does that have to be correlated to predestination? That would that would be kind of my pushback. I would look at it like this. This is the way I always explain it to people. Think of life as a choose your own adventure book. Okay. And anybody who doesn't know what that is, basically, it's a book that has several different stories within the same binded book. So as you read chapters one and two, at the end of chapter two, it'll say, if you want the dog to die, then go to chapter six. If you want the dog to live, go to chapter nine. So you get to choose where you go. You have the free will as the reader. The author knows every possibility, but the author doesn't force you to pick one of those storylines. You have the free will as a free agent to choose. But does that mean the author doesn't know every possible outcome? Of course not. He wrote it. He knows. That's that's the that's what got me when I when I was in seminary, we went hard into this topic. And I just and I had no idea how to how to defend what I believed. I just no part of me could could ever comprehend God being implicated in evil because I just I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's physically spiritually possible. I think they're antithetical. So I I had a hard time reconciling that. And then we got to a point where like the choose your own adventure book made perfect sense to me. God knows everything. He he knows and and still even then in the, in the book analogy, the author doesn't necessarily know where you're going to go, but he knows every possible outcome. Within theology, I believe God knows where you're going to go, but he also knows that you could change your mind and go to chapter 7. He knows that, or knows that you will, but it's still open-ended for you as an individual to choose. You still have choice. Just because God knows something doesn't mean he made you do it. It means he's aware of it. Because that's sometimes that's pushback I'll get a lot. Is like, well, if that's God forcing you to go to chapter 6, no, 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 no. You still have the choice just because he knows where you're going to go. doesn't mean he made you go. You still had the choice. I had some of those books and they did not make any sense. If you read it cover to cover. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Cause it's not meant to be read that way. It makes sense. I feel like if that was true, why would we worship someone who predestines evil? Exactly. Exactly. I had, I had a conversation with a Calvinist, kind of a debate, but it was mostly civil. Um, and I asked him, is, is sexual assault predestined by God? And he, he said, yes. 
And I had no idea what to say back to that. If, if God predestines people to suffer, if God literally makes, because the concept is that God forces, because we don't really have free will, he decides and makes a sexual assault happen. It's a choice he makes. And what the Calvinists will say is, well, we don't know his purpose. You know, we can't know all his plans. We don't, they throw the Job thing out, right? That there's so much more going on and that we can never understand, which that idea I get. But then within the ethical, moral framework of God, it's contradictory. You can't have both. You can't, you can't say there's all these things we don't understand. And, and then within our world, have people commit evil and say that that is of God, but then also say that God is absolutely pure and cannot engage in evil. They're contradictory things entirely. Why do anything if we are predestined to someone? Yeah, exactly. That's the other big point. What's, what's the point? If, I mean, if my kid is predestined to not know Christ, what's, what's the point of her being here? Was it to, to go through life just with no purpose? with no possibility of like elevating of, of understanding things spiritually, making a decision. And I would say, I just lay in bed into whatever I felt like doing. Yeah. There's no motivation, man. There's no reason to do anything other than seek pleasure, just seek worldly pleasure. Cause once it's done, you're, you're, you, you've nailed, you put the nail in the coffin for your eternity away from anything that is good which is kind of the concept of hell, right? The separation from spiritual goodness under the name of God. If we are predestined, then we don't need to choose to believe in Christ. No, because Christ chose you. Chose you. You had no choice. It was decided. And everyone who burns for all of eternity was decided by God. I struggle so much with that idea. So much with that idea. That means God makes people just for them to suffer for all of eternity. That is their purpose. Certain people's purpose is to suffer forever. That's awful. That's not, you can't reconcile that with the character of who God is. They're irreconcilable. I don't like that argument that he gave you regarding essay. No, but, well, because it's a horrible argument. I agree. It's an awful argument. Wait, if there's predestination, then there is no free will. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, so those are, those are the two differences between Calvinism and Arminianism and open theism. You've got like Calvinism way over on the left side. You've got Arminianism kind of in the middle, but leaning right. And then on the far right side of the spectrum, you have open theism, which is basically everything is free will. I lean much, I, I lean pretty far on the open theism side. But no, you can't have predestination and free will. They're absolute opposites of each other in every possible way. In the tulip, one thing said, there's nothing inside man that's worthy. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Another very good point. Yes. Yes. So you, you have to kind of get away from the Holy Spirit being in you and the Holy Spirit being innately good if you're going to go the whole total depravity. Because that's, that's your reference, just the total depravity. Men are totally depraved. Let me frame it like this. Can I kill someone shoving a mockingbird down someone's throat or with a bunch of roses? God's good creation used for evil purposes. <laughs> I got to wrap my mind around this one. Mikkel always throwing out some kind of heat. Let me, can I kill someone shoving a mockingbird down someone's throat 
or with the bunch of roses, God's good creation used for evil purposes. I mean, you can, right? Physically, literally. Water is good, but folks still drown. Yeah. I'd say no, no. Unless, unless the idea is that God, that person doesn't have free will, and that God was basically using them as a vessel to shove a mockingbird or a rose down someone's throat. One, one's direct, one, one is indirect. One, one involves God doing something, and one involves free will. You know, I have the free will to go get a mockingbird and shove it down your throat, or grab a bunch of roses and choke you out with them. That's, I believe I have free will to do that. A Calvinist would say God predestined that to happen. That individual who did it had no choice. God predestined it because everything that happens, whether good or bad, was predestined before the beginning of time. Every essay event, every murder, every kid getting hit by a car, every kid with cancer, every mockingbird that gets shoved down somebody's throat, God predestined all of that before the beginning of time. I absolutely reject that in every possible sense. Yeah, I don't. It, Drew said I can't. I he can control it, but I don't think. God, this thing cuts stuff off. I don't think he is. I I don't think God is directly involved in much of anything in the world at this point. And I have kind of an odd theory about that. So I'll tell you the theory. Here's my theory. I was talking to Cat about this. I think a few weeks ago. I believe again, and anybody who's watching on YouTube, I'm going to use my hands to convey something. So hopefully you are. Uh, the world is in the middle. Underneath us, again, we talked about this with the first demonology. Uh, underneath us is this dark fog. It's dark energy. It's dark spirituality. It's it's Satan. It's demons. It's whatever word you want to give it. But it's 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 the epitome of evil is underneath us, underneath our world. Our world's in the middle. Epitome of evil underneath us, very dark, very foggy, very evil. Above us is this light, right? Everything is positive. Everything is good energy. It's That's what God is. God, God is a moral, positive energy, right? Because he's not a person. He's some kind of entity. So above us is good. Below us is evil. And again, I believe every person in the world has the ability to connect with the spiritual, so there are people who are connecting with good, and there are people who are connecting with evil. Whether that evil is demons, Satan directly, I don't, I don't care what you call it. Even, and even on the God end, it's just goodness. I don't care to call it God. I don't care to call it Jesus. Those are the ways we specify, but it's just goodness. It's morality above us. It's immorality below us. And every person has the ability to connect with spirituality, with these spiritual entities, with the, the, the other realms, Right. So every time we connect with something that is evil, we're causing like a, a tie to that realm, to the evil realm, to people who are evil. And they, they, that connection stays live. So if you have 100,000 people who connect to evil, imagine our world in the middle here turning darker on the bottom. And that spreads. And the more people connect to it, the more people spread. And the more people connect to it, the darker the world gets. And the same thing happens on the positive end. The more of us who connect with that which is good, which is God, we make a connection. There's a string connection to good. And so you have this, you have the earth, and it's this constant battle of, of evil and good connections. 
with human beings. And I, I believe, and this is not a biblical thing or anything like that, but I believe that God cannot be in the presence of that which is so evil. Because I, th I think it's, I don't think it's possible. And again, not biblical in any way. I don't think it's possible, though. So I think if in the world, we make too many connections to that which is evil, I believe God isn't able to stay as connected. To totally not biblical. So don't come at me. This is an odd opinion, a weird theory. But I think if you if you see God as just the epitome of morality, the epitome of that which is good, and you see Satan or demons, whatever, I don't like the names, but if you see them as just the epitome of evil, of immorality, can morality coexist with immorality? No, because they're antithetical. So it's I, that's why I, I like I live under the assumption that we are in a world at war, and I mean it in every freaking sense. But I think the world turns darker and darker the more we connect with evil. And the reality is the world is connected with evil more than it's connected with good. And the other reality is that over human history, it seems like God has begun to engage less and less and less with the human race. So is that by choice? Or is that because he is the epitome of good and cannot be in the presence of evil? It's not possible because they're antithetical. I don't know how the spiritual realm works, man. But that's, that's, like, that's the way I kind of conceptualize it. Is that God, who is a being that is is literally is what good is, and demonic energies are what bad is, because every bad thing on earth and any good thing on earth come from those realms, those opposing realms. I think the world has turned more dark than light. I think we have more connections to demons and to evil than we do to that which is good and to God. And so I believe over human history... It seems to align, like if they were on a chart together, I, I bet they would correlate. That the, the more evil connections people on Earth make, the less involvement God has on Earth. And I don't think it's because he's rejecting us or turning his back on us. I think it's because it's, it's, not, it's not possible within this realm for God to be somewhere that is predominantly evil. I have this weird theory that if, if we all of a sudden shift that, where 60% of the earth is connected to good spirituality, is spiritually healthy, I, I believe God would be more involved again. Odd theories, man, but that's, uh, that's where I kind of land on all this stuff. I agree God is not directly acting on us much anymore, but for the fact that he achieved his work in 70 AD, now odd to say we live in the, full the fulfilled kingdom awaiting our individual judgments. That's good. I do not disagree with that. <laughs> also, the world is saying, yes, his playground until God comes back to make his eternal kingdom on earth. Yeah, I mean, the, Bi the Bible straight up says that. That's why that's always confused me. The Bible says this world's like not his. But then that poses other questions, man. That's why I like this. This never ends. It never ends. And some of it is because there are contradictions in the Bible. And some of it is because contradictions, they come out that way when they're really not. But it, it gets philosophically confusing, for sure. Is the world still Satan's, or is it just a bunch of people staying away, staying from the way and stepping on each other's toes? That's more where I lean. That's my whole thing. Like I, I believe too many people 
have made connections with demons, for lack of a better word, have made connections with evil. And therefore, we are giving it to Satan or, you know, whatever. I hate the names, man. But I I believe people are consciously connecting to evil more than they're connecting to good. And therefore, evil is running the world. And I believe that could just as easily flip. That if more people connected to good, morality would win. And the world would obviously look very, very different. Maze, good to see you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, turn from Jesus. When he became covered in sin, also, what does darkness have in common with light? Yeah. Yup. That, man, if you, if you get into the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's some, there's some interesting stuff with that. Today, God dropped this on me, says Teal. On earth as it is in heaven, ain't nobody going to be able to play like they do now. On earth, when heaven comes, it's going to be a whole nother story. And people had better know which side they are on because it's once it's done, it's done. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Teal, was that a response to something? Or was that just dropped on you out of nowhere? I'm just kind of curious. When God defeats Satan, that's when Jesus comes back, right? Then the kingdom is here on earth. So until it's Satan's right. I I don't know. I have no idea, man. I, I don't take revelation as like the what's going to happen at all. I put very, very little weight in revelation. And it's for a handful of different reasons. Not to say it's not beneficial and not to say it's not something we should all read, but I just, I, I love it too. It's great. It's very interesting, but I put zero weight in it. And most of that comes from my outside reading. So I think maybe as we do Enoch and maybe as we read some other apocryphal texts, you might have a different opinion, but revelation to the normal Christian, that's all you got. So it seems like the rah, rah, right? But there's, it's, there's so much crazier stuff. Outside of Revelation, for sure. Dr. John, yes, loaded words, hard to talk about it. Didn't God defeat Satan at the cross, or did he offer us the keys to the kingdom? That's that's another interesting question, man. I've, I've talked to people about this before. It's you have you have both sides of the camps, right? You have people who believe that God defeated Satan at the cross, but does that really make sense? Is that really what happened? In in experience, it seems not. But possibly. I mean, Satan was one of many, right? That's that's kind of the idea. Is Satan is the leader, and and then you have all of these other demonic entities. And if you get outside of Christianity into some of the other religions and paganism at the time, there's a whole bunch of different ideas of demonic uh, entities, right? Individuals. So was Satan just kind of the first fall, or was Satan kind of the leader of the demonic army? That's why like, I don't like the names, man. I don't I don't really talk about Satan much. I, I talk more about like the totality of evil. And may, maybe that's a, a hundred million different demons and maybe it's 10 different demons. Like, I have no idea. And nothing about Christian history makes any of that clear. So I just I just look at them as the totality of evil and the totality of good, at least on the good end. Like I, I've got God and I've got Jesus who I'm confident in. Beyond that, I have no idea. We, you know, we know about the angel armies, like there's other little references to certain things, but there's no specifications at all. But that's an interesting question. I don't believe Jesus dying on the cross defeated Satan. 
I, I believe the cross was for our benefit. I don't, but, but I could absolutely be wrong. You know, I have no idea. I have no idea, but that's, that's my opinion. I believe it was more of the keys to the kingdom. Kind of like you said, that's where I land with it personally. And I could absolutely be wrong, but that's, that's where I hit it. When Jesus comes back, the totality of good will last forever. Yeah. See, I, and I do agree with that. I agree that there will be a point where everything kind of comes full circle and, and what was meant for Adam and Eve will eventually in some way be kind of the end, the end point here. But I have, you know, I have no idea, man. It's all open-ended. And Satan is also able to become the flesh. See Peter. So then, so then, is any direct physical interaction with, you know, demonology within the world today, is that Satan or, or were the authors using Satan to express demonic energy? Is it an individual or, or was it a, a word choice to express the totality of evil, which can, you know, come up in any possible way? It can come up in somebody's emotions. It can come up as a physical attachment. You know, how, who knows? Who knows? Appreciate that. It's an odd thing to consider that this could be God's eternal plan to continue a human breeding ground and each of us now focusing on our individual walk with God. That's interesting. It is an odd thing. I 100% agree with that. That's very interesting. Doesn't Satan have the face of an ox based on when the cherubs are described? I have to find it. Is that an illustration, though? I don't, I don't think he physically looks like an ox. But then again, I don't believe Satan physically looks like anything. I don't. That's like, that's the thing that it drives me insane because I feel like I can't get other people to like see what I see in my head. But I, I don't believe evil has a face at all. I think it's it's an energy. It's an and I, I don't want to sound new age because I'm not, but like it's an energy. I mean, everything is energy. You are energy. I am energy. That's a fact. New age people have ruined these types of this type of verbiage. But get get it out of your head. You are you are made of energy. As a human being, you are energy. I am energy. I believe have you anybody who's had like a spiritual experience with God, does that not feel like energy, man? Like, like, like nerves, just like you have this electricity running through you. It's, it's energy. I believe spirituality is like super tied to physical energy and spiritual energy. So I, I just don't think any of them have a face. I think they're energies there. It's a presence that you feel when, when you feel like God's with you. It's a presence that you feel when you feel like a demon's with you. It's, I just, I don't see them as like people or like a tangible thing. It's, it's a spiritual energy to me and totally an opinion. Those dropped on me out of nowhere. I agree. There are so many dwelling. There are so many dwelling on her. Oh, for sure. I just learned last week that Satan is the title and not his name. Yes. Satan was an old word. That's what, that's what drives me crazy. That's why I don't like saying Satan. I like, I like saying evil energy or totality of evil or demon. I just, we've, we've like bastardized these words. So it's hard to communicate with people without sounding like cheesy. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure what the term would be, but 
John 3, 17, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Yes. Oh my God, what did I walk into? Well, you walked in late, as usual, to a great conversation. It was on Calvinism, and now we're back on demons. Yeah, you can feel them both, because they're energies, man. They're energies. God is an energy. That's what, that's what he, quote-unquote, is. That's what God is an it to me, like that, and that pisses people off. But I, God's not a dude, nor is he a woman. Like it's he's an energy he's 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 something you can't see he's a presence that is is so wildly outside of our conception that i just i have a hard time calling god a he and i piss people off when i say it but like i don't know what else to say he just whew, mystic we love you man <laughs> don't feel attacked if i can't get on your case then i have nothing to live for yeah, the great I am, man. The great I am. I got banned from church for saying F Satan, Jeremiah. <laughs> Sounds about right. Sounds about right. All right, let me see. Oh, shoot. I got to catch up. But Satan is also able to become flesh. Superior. Oh, I read that. I read that. Okay. Satan isn't defeated. He is said to go to the lake of fire reserved for demons and saying, yeah, but what is the lake of fire? That gets us into this whole other thing. And I, that's why I put hell. Uh, what is the concept of hell on the pole for these Thursday conversations? Because we have such a horrible idea of what hell is. Christians in general have such a horrible idea of what hell is. And it's another one of these concepts that like we base our entire lives off of. And we have very, very little information on it. And yet we've built this huge castle around the concept of hell, which is something we have no clue about. It's one of the things that we have very little information about, but it's like a fundamental belief within our faith. I find that so odd, so odd. And it just goes over everybody's head. We just accept it. Hell is the lake of fire. It's a place. There's very little to back. Any of that stuff, man. It's a it's a deep conversation, a super deep conversation. Does the lake of fire destroy? Interesting question. No idea. No idea. I had a firm grip on hell for a very long time through seminary. And then like at the end of seminary, when I started to question everything, I realized I know absolutely nothing about it because none of it makes any sense. The way that it's preached in church, it makes no sense. Where are they getting that from? It's it's. And it's not the Bible, I can tell you that. There are very few references to it, and none of them are cohesive with each other. That's why, that's why I find it so interesting. I see Peter as indeed being possessed by Satan the whole way, worse than Judas, the ultimate hypocrite. I'm interested about that. Why do you say? It's just that Jesus loved him so much, he didn't, he didn't rat on him with the other disciples until the time he called him by. Oh, okay, I, I know what you're talking about then. Definitely wasn't the friend you'd want to have when you're in a bind. <laughs> Danny Druff. Doesn't scripture say that powers and principalities do exist and we are in the midst of a spiritual war, but that we don't need to be concerned with it because we've already won? Sure. And then at the same time, there's references that say the exact opposite. So that, that's why it's, it's an interesting thing. But to say that we've won the spiritual war, 
I think, would be to deny our senses that God gave us, whether they be spiritual, whether they be visual, whether they be uh, intuition. I think if you live in the world that I live in, there uh, you can't say we've won against evil. I think it's it's I think it's a silly idea. I, I get where you're pulling it from the Bible, but then take the totality of what the Bible teaches about spiritual warfare, about good and evil. The Bible also says that this world is run by the enemy straight up says that. So then you, you have to take the totality of these references and say, which one has more weight? And the concept that this world is under control of demonic principalities is much more heavy, is much heavier, excuse me. Revelation 20, Satan is cast to the lake of fire and destroyed. Yes. Revelation is not my not my bag, though. Not my thing. Danny, yes, because neither height nor depth, angels, principalities, etc. are, yep. But the reality is, evil exists. So then we have to reconcile. So how do you reconcile? Take the totality of the concept. This is, here, small, short exegesis lesson. The Bible contradicts itself. That is a fact, an absolute fact. You, you cannot get away from it. Does that mean things are untrue? No. We're dealing with a huge collection of text over hundreds of years. It's complex. It's very complex. So things are going to contradict. Things are going to happen with a bunch of different authors, different time periods, different cultures, different geography. It's going to happen. So what you have to do with a concept like hell, Take the concept of hell, do parallel studies, do exegetical studies, go through Bible studies, and take the totality of the concept of hell anywhere it's mentioned in the Bible. Take everything you see in different study Bibles, going through different theologies. Don't just read Arminianist study Bibles. Read Calvinist, read Open Theism, read Arminianist, read a whole bunch of different study Bibles from different theological views of people who butt heads. They don't agree. Take the totality of the information and see what has the most weight, what is referred to the most, where do we have the most clarity? And then that gives you the most clear exegetically picture you can get on whatever that concept is. But taking this verse here and being like, oh, well, the Bible says this. Well, cool. There are 10 other spots that say the opposite of that. So do we take the one verse that says that or the 10 that say the opposite of that? That is why cherry picking Bible verses and throwing them out is it should never be done for any reason should ever be done. And that's why I was doing the daily Bible verse on social media for a long time. I am having a really hard time having anything to do with social media anymore. So now I'm just doing it on the discord. And it's just about the context. Like, what are we talking about? What is the totality of this? What does this actually mean based on everything in the New Testament? Not just this one verse that's throwing singles out is never a good idea. Hell is other people. I like animals more than I like people. People suck and are stupid. That's uh, that's our household. I say the evil one rather than Satan, who was once Lucifer, angel of light to say adversary would imply the evil one being of equal. Bring our equal, which he's not an evil entity like Legion thrown off. Maze, do you mean that like you don't call him an adversary because he doesn't stand a chance? Is that am I getting like the concept of that right? I don't 
I maybe it's a hot take, but I think he stands a chance. He's doing a pretty damn good job of roughing up the world we live in right now. I have a little bit of a hard time with that. Leave the little things alone and focus on the major things that truly matter. That's what we can't do because we as humans are so stubborn and have to be right. Yes, much appreciated. Would love to stay, but have to catch the rest later on lunch at work. Man, where do you live? Well, it was nice to uh, nice to see you, man. Get in the Discord if, you, uh, if you're not already. There's a link in the description, I'm sure. Otherwise, go to TattooTheist.com. You'll be able to jump in right there. Actually, let me get a link ready. Yeah. There you go, Drew. Join the Discord. Join the Discord. 22 people online. All right, copy link. Bada boom. There's a link for anybody who wants to get in. Like a fire shield mentioned in Psalm, but wasn't meant for people, but be but for Satan and demons. Yeah, so shield, the, the concept of shield. And hell, quote unquote, are two totally separate things. I think we talked about it. What was it on Sunday? The Bible study, maybe? Or was it the last Thursday? The demonology part two? I don't remember. But the Sheol and hell, quote unquote, are technically two completely different places or realms or, you know, whatever word you want to use for it. They're not synonymous. They're different. But is that a fact that we know and experience, or is that based on what the media spin for us to digest or reject? What, Teal? Is what a fact that we know and experience? I must, uh, I probably missed something, so I apologize. Sarah, have a good night. Yeah, the discussion on hell will be really good. It'll be really, really good. It's, it's like one of my favorite topics is the not just hell but after death what happens what actually happens because i think what most christians believe is silly and that's it's a hot take i totally understand i don't mean any offense by it at all at all but just personally i'm, I'm allowed to have my own opinion i feel that it's silly i think it's silly i think it's silly theologically i think it's silly just in general it's just it's an it's not from the bible the majority of it is not in the bible it's these weird concepts that developed over time in the early church. Is the Discord open now? Link send. Yeah, the Discord's 100% open now. It has been for a while. And actually, I think it's like a community server now, which I don't, I don't really fully know what that means. Sarah probably does. But I know, like, I think we show up now if you search for us or something. I don't know. But... Yeah, it's open. So anybody you want to get into Discord, just have them go to TattooTheist.com. There's a widget on there about halfway down the page, and you can just click Join Discord. Like right now, it's got everybody who's online listed. And oh, it shows us in the voice chat too, which is kind of cool. But yeah, it's totally open. But is that what a factor? I already read that. Yes, Sunday. How drastic Satan and minions are working in this world. How drastic Satan and minions are working in this world. I think extremely drastically. I think wildly drastically. The context of the words that doesn't contradict. An adversary implies he's your equal. I mean, I don't believe he's our equal, but as far as like warfare, 
uh, I don't want to say something and then get trapped in it. But I, from my experience in the world that we live in, I think Satan is an adversary. That's And that's my personal opinion. And I understand probably most people disagree with it. But with what I've experienced in my life, with what I have seen, he's doing pretty good. He's doing pretty good. And again, if the world is in the middle and dark is below and light is above, and every little ray of light or ray of darkness connecting to the earth signifies a human connecting with either evil or good, I am fully under the belief that there are more people connecting with evil than there are people connecting with good. So is he an adversary? If he is an, a legitimate single entity, which I don't believe to begin with, yes. But again, I don't believe that. I believe you have the totality of evil, the essence of evil, and I believe evil is an adversary because it's, I mean, we experience it in the world. There, there are more slaves today than ever in history, and the majority of them are sexual slaves. And the Bible is relatively clear that sexual immorality is of a very high status as far as what evil is. So just experientially, I have a hard time saying evil isn't an adversary. But that is just an opinion, 100%. Joe, next Thursday is hell. What happens after that? All right, I'll 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 make the administrative decision that we'll do hell next week. We won't even run a poll. Yeah, Mikel, I know. But I, I can't help being honest, man. People can hate me because I'm honest. I'm fine with that. It's all good. You guys come because I'm honest, not because I tell you the Christian, you know, talking points that you want to hear. It's not ever going to happen, man. It's not ever going to happen. What do Christians believe what happens immediately after death? Depends on the Christian that you believe, or depends on the Christian that you ask. You have Christians who believe in kind of purgatory, limbo, something like that. And then you have Christians who believe you either go straight to heaven or straight to hell. Sheol was basically, it was kind of limbo. Sheol was kind of purgatory. It's not the same thing as Catholics believed purgatory was. But Sheol was like, Sheol is where it's believed that Jesus went after death before coming back wasn't hell Jesus didn't go to hell it's it's thought that he went to Sheol which is kind of where evil and good goes after death before they then go to whatever the final you know spiritual resting place is. that is one concept I'm not saying that is my concept but that is a fairly popular concept so would you say that you he could really stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with God for souls Ugh. In a way, yes, but it's be, it's because of what I explained earlier. My personal opinion, not a biblical opinion, is that it's this constant tug of war, right? Like, and and the 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 big thing for me is that I don't believe the totality of morality, the the totality of goodness. I don't believe it can dwell somewhere where evil is so highly present. It's like it's like magnets that repel each other. I, I don't believe spiritual goodness can physically or spiritually in any way be that close to evil. So if on our physical earth, more people are connected to evil than good, I believe that is why God has become less involved. Not because he doesn't want to, not because he doesn't care, not because he can't win, but because 
there is such a heavy evil presence on earth that the totality of goodness, which we give the name God, it's is not capable of being that close to evil because they're antithetical to each other. They are the opposite things. They can't blend in any way. T totally wild opinions. Fully aware of that. But that's what makes sense to me. But to say to say Satan or whatever, to say evil is not doing a damn good job of running the world right now and realistically running the world for basically all of the world, all of the history of the world, I think is silly. Evil has has from positions of power down to small has run almost everything. Has been the majority in many ways in most places for all of history. Evil has basically taken control of a lot of things and then good will come back and then evil will take control again. It seems it's we've spent more time under evil control than we have under any control that is good, in my opinion. <laughs> All right. What about Chris? I've heard that, and then I heard you just sleep and wait. Voice that then when we die, we immediately go to heaven. I'd say that's the most common Christian belief, is that when you die, you go straight to heaven. That's the most common belief, for sure. I heard that too, and now I'm just confused and slightly scared. Don't be scared. Nickelback is enough for me. According to my parents, I'm probably damned for having tattoos for honoring my mother and father. Yeah, I wish tattoos were the biggest concern we had in our lifetime. That would be very comforting. I'd say I was there. There being hell because at a Nickelback concert, I think that's probably pretty accurate. I can't stand Nickelback either. It's uh, it's not my jam. That's for sure. Not for me, man. Not for me. They all sound exactly the same. 100% agree. Why sad SpongeBob? No sad SpongeBob. Happy SpongeBob. There you go. That's better. Happy SpongeBob. It's all the same song. Hell is being at the DMV on a Monday morning whilst uncaffeinated right after the early bird specials have ended with Nickelback playing over the intercom and you're the last in line next time. That's fair. And now I get where the Nickelback topic came from. It's like the 90s. You could hum one. <laughs> That's totally accurate. All right. Any, anything else on this? Anything else on this? Otherwise, we'll wrap up for the night. I feel like no matter what, we end up on hell and demons and in some way or another. it's We always end up right back here. Which I get. I get it. 
because these are the things that I think about the most also. I just I just didn't realize that was normal for everybody else here. Well, yeah, they kind of suck. I assume that's to Nickelback, and yes, very much agreed. But being honest and looking back from the garden and seeing and hearing God did this, then failure, poof, start over. And this theme seems to happen over and over and over and over. I think God is close to done because agreeing that this world is almost like hell on earth and he is has face palmed and says, here we go again. So he shrugs and is making the next plan. And then he is going to just hand purple, blue piece out. Do you think so? Do you think he's just going to write us off and start another earth or another dimension or another type of living being? Or is that what you're saying? I feel like I read it right, but I, I could definitely be wrong. Boys bands are hell. Christianity is much more positive is a much more positive message. Jesus undid the works of the devil. Jesus rules and reigns. That's the Christian message. If we preach that message, Christians would again be good. I feel like that's all we preach. I feel like that's all I hear. Is all is well. You know, we're all good. Christ reigns. Christ won on the cross. Evil has been defeated. Like, has it? That's not been my experience. That's not been people I know. They're ruled by evil. Most of my life was, myself included, ruled by evil. There was nothing good or under Christ that about it in any way. I wish that was the message, but but I feel like that's all that's preached in churches. So I I, I don't. I guess I just I don't agree. If we preach that message, Christians would be would again be good. I don't know many churches now that that preach about evil. All they do is the happy-go-lucky, covered by grace, everything is good, Jesus reigns. But I, I guess, you know, that's that's just my experience. I'm not saying anything else about the world as a whole or anything like that. But can we talk about the absolute God infinite, leaving the relative evil finite out? Uh, expand, expand on that, Mikhail. I'm good with staying away from demons and whatnot. I want to learn some more good knowledge from Joe to make myself biblically smarter. Well, tonight was good academic history, man. And then as soon as we were done, we went back to the spiritual stuff, which I like. It's a good mix. It's sad that more than half missed the uh, the history lesson, though. I, I think every Christian should at least kind of understand like what the Reformation was. Why did it happen? What what were they actually doing? What was their goal? Did they accomplish it? What were the pros and cons of the Reformation? I think these are things every Christian should have at least a very baseline, just like a paragraph worth of understanding on, on what that was, because you would have nothing even remotely similar to the types of churches that we see in America today, if not for the Reformation. And I say that again as somebody who wildly disagrees with Calvinism, wildly. But what Calvin did and was a part of, because it wasn't just him, you know, it was four key people. But what they did, what they started, it, it changed everything, everything. If Jesus is all good, why are most Christians so bad, so unlike the Jesus they follow? 
because Christians are hypocrites is the truth. Because in, in reality, every human on this planet is a hypocrite. It's to what degree? And sadly, it seems like Christians as a system have taken the cake as the kings and queens of hypocrisy because we do not practice what we preach. Because sadly, Christians aren't one with the Father as Jesus was one with the Father. Yeah, agreed. Okay, I'm out because Drew, have a lovely evening. Tell the kids we love them. I mean, I'm not perfect, but if I ever did unspeakable evil, there should be evidence of changed heart, right? Does God judge on a curve or did all sin crucify him? Or is murder less than lies? So the, the biblical concept is that the all sin is on the same level. The only slight differentiation with that you have is the reference from Paul about sexual sin. There is an indication that sexual sin is on some kind of different level than all other sin. That, it, that it's more damaging spiritually than other sin. But beyond that, you have no biblical basis to say there's any sort of levels to sin. There's just sin, and then there's sexual sin that in some way, somehow, it's unclear, is on some kind of different level than all of the rest of sin as a whole. I mean, there, there are, and myself included, and other people I, I know who have engaged in evil, like, and not lying, like evil, and we've made it out. So I, I do think that happens, and, and like, thank God. And it, it's, it's to, for some of us, it's such a drastic change. Like, I literally don't recognize who I used to be at an earlier point in my life. And, you know, there's plenty of people that are in similar boats to that. It's sin against your own body, but it's worse than murder, abortion. I said, there's no way to answer that question because there's no, there's n we have absolutely nothing to answer that question. So if anybody ever answers that question for you, you know not to trust them ever again with, with something like that. There is absolutely no clear answer to that question, Maze. In any way, you'd be making it up. The only the only verifiable anything we have that differentiates sin is that sin is relatively equal, but that sexual sin is more damaging. God, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, the absolute how on the cosmos God avoids. Maybe I'm just missing it, man, but I'm not. I'm like having a hard time interpreting the question, Mikhail. God, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, the absolute. How on the cosmos God avoids finite evil. I'm, I'm going to say something, and I have no idea if it even relates to what you're, but I, I hope that it might, is I feel like people will try to conceptualize God, I mean, at all, but we'll try to conceptualize God within like our intellectual framework we're like and I, i've said this before but humans can only ex conceptualize something we have heard seen smelled or felt that's it so there there's 
a whole universe. There's all these dimensions and realms and all this stuff that like the human mind could ne- how could we ever try to picture it? We've never seen it. How could we ever try like th- we have senses, right? On earth, we have all these senses. There could be another plane of existence where they have all different senses. But they're senses that we could never even understand because they they're not present in the world that we live in. All that we can ever understand is that which we see, hear, smell, or feel. Does that make sense? I get so frustrated trying to explain this stuff. But God God is so far removed from like our conceptual understanding, from our physical world, that they don't even they don't even like relate. I think God's so far out of it. I just I believe that these ties can be made between God and humanity because we have spirituality inside of us that is that is removed in and of itself from our physical body and our physical senses. It's a purely spiritual thing. It's an otherworldly thing that allows us to connect with God. And I, I think it's I believe personally that it's similar with evil that evil is a spirituality. It's something on a different dimension. There's something in a different realm, whatever silly word you want to use, but it's, it's outside of our conception, but on a spiritual level, we have this weird ability to connect with it. Are we saved on acts or faith? Do we need to be perfect once converted? I mean, it's impossible, you know, for being honest, it's impossible. I, I, I always talk about it like, like this. If, if One, I, I don't believe somebody can truly experience God and then not have some kind of drastic change of life. I don't think it's possible. So somebody who says that they're, you know, saved or which being saved is like, that's a heavy spiritual experience. That's not just like, oh, I'm saved. Like, no, you, you experienced God. And you're lackadaisical about it? Like, no, you didn't. No, that makes no sense. If you experience God, it's kind of like a mind-blowing thing. It kind of like changes the way you think about everything. So I think people who experience God, are they have a compulsion to live differently. Because now they see and perceive the world and themselves and all of existence in a completely different way. And sometimes it's slow and sometimes it's not. And, you know, it's different for everybody for sure. But I don't think you can experience that which is divine and not have a fairly significant change in behavior. Change in choices, change in thoughts, change in feelings. I don't think that's possible. And that's my opinion, but I, I don't think it's possible. But I also think to be perfect after you experience God is just kind of silly to think about. Everybody still does things they shouldn't do. But it's it's like where's your where's your heart? What's the condition of your? That's a stupid thing I say all the time. Is what what is the condition of your heart when you did that? It should be drastically different than the condition of your heart prior to experiencing God when you would engage in that behavior. But perpetual sin in the Bible says you're essentially I, I'd have to find it, but basically that you're doing the devil's work, that you are captured by the enemy. If after salvation, if after you experience God, you continue to perpetually sin over and over the same types of things, that's that becomes a choice. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
oh man, it got stuck. Does faith alone save Satan and demons believe and have faith, but aren't saved? But also it says faith without works is dead. Do not be fooled, etc. So does that mean work saves us? I would just say the same thing I said before. That's why like, I don't, I don't believe it's by faith alone and I don't believe it's by works alone. I, I, I believe there's a, there's some kind of middle ground between having the actual experience with God and then what you perpetuate after that. What do you do after that? What is your life like after that? What is your perception of spirituality, of your neighbor, of yourself, of random people? I don't think you can experience God and then just keep living the same way you were before. I, I think you didn't experience God. I think something else might have happened. But that that's a good example of one of these things in the Bible that does not make sense. It does not correlate. So you have to be you have to sacrifice one of them somewhere and you have to decide why you chose to sacrifice one view over the other. But yeah, saints and demons believed in God. They believed Jesus was who he said he was. That's why he was tempted. So to say faith alone provides salvation, it doesn't quite make sense. But at the same time, if you if if you leave the physical world, do the same rules still apply? Right? If you if you are a demon, you're not a human. You're not you're not in the same category as us. So do the rules even apply to you? Or do all demons believe in God, but they're not people, so they don't qualify for salvation, to say it like that. Workspace leads to pride, like I don't cuss smoke chew i'm a good godly christian i'm better than you mentally or despair like it's impossible to measure up maybe i'm not elect than you have that's that's why i think there's a balance i think there's a balance i don't think good works are done out of guilt i don't think they're done all, all of what you described is just arrogance that's self-righteous arrogance which is not godly Right. So it's Christians who engage in good behavior to shove it in somebody's face to feel better about themselves than others. Those in and of themselves are already evil behaviors. Those are bad behaviors. Give you good because you love God. Don't we obey because we get to because we love God, not we have to or if we don't. That, that's what I'm saying. So that's what I'm saying. I believe when somebody experiences God, they have a compulsion to perform good works. That's not obeying because we have to. I, I believe you have such a drastic change of heart that you have this compulsion to live differently because you want to, because you want to give back, because your life has been altered forever. It's a compulsion. It's very positive. It's, very, uh, it's a very good condition of the heart to have that compulsion. Does that mean you can... Then what does the prodigal son, what about the prodigal son? Does that mean you can wander 99 for the one and God brings you back much like the parable of the prodigal son and religious people get mad because they're perfect. I'm, I don't think I get it. I don't think I get the question. I'm sorry. 
I don't get the question. With the prodigal son thing, if you want to try to explain differently. I'm sorry. I apologize. I don't fully get what you're asking. So Calvin was an evil man, justified killing his rivals, but theology is still relevant and observed to this day. Fascinating. Yeah, true. I mean, there were a lot of evil people throughout history who provided something positive for the world. That's just a fact. If we choose to ignore that, then that's ignorance. People don't need to be morally good to provide something moral for society. Like that, that happens. It's just a thing that happens. It is fascinating, though. It's very interesting. You could say the same about King David murdering Bathsheba's husband, true. Known as a man after God's own heart, Adam and Eve were in the face of God. What happened to their compulsion? Well, I don't take Genesis literally, so that would be my answer for Adam and Eve. I don't believe that's a literal account of how the earth was created. I believe it's more of an illustration. You could say the same about King David murdering Bathsheba's husband. Say the same about what, though? I just The Bible is realistically, it's a story of people failing. If we're being honest, especially the Old Testament, it's, it's literally a story of people failing over and over and over and over again. It's a book of failure with an ending of hope. But it's a book of failure. It's the, and just like the law, Mosaic law, Levitical law, it's a mirror to, to, to point back at the individual of how absolutely lost, hopeless, and broken you are without Jesus. Like that, that's what the law was, was a mirror. I mean, I would argue many people, many of the characters in the Old Testament were evil. I mean, without a doubt, I wouldn't argue against that at all. They behaved in evil ways over and over. But the, there, there's a difference, again, between somebody who even murder, in my opinion, and I mean, biblically, too, realistically, but you can murder somebody and have a change of heart. Does it mean the murder wasn't evil? No, it's still evil. But does it mean you're hopeless? No, because the Bible shows that there is still hope for some of these people. Does it mean everybody still has hope? No, some of them had no hope. I mean, God struck people down in the New Testament for not giving all of the tithe to the early church. And it's because they lied. They said they were going to bring a certain amount. And what they did instead was they gave a percentage to the church and they kept some and tried to hide it. God struck both of them dead. So that, again, pretty inconsistent, which is kind of the story of the Bible, if you're honest with yourself. There, there isn't always consistency. But you can build big picture, culmination. You can build a moral framework. Is it perfect? No, because the Bible contradicts it in certain places. But totality, you can build a pretty solid, moral framework from the Bible. Old and new, we are all evil. We'll all have sinned and fallen short. Except Jesus. Yeah. Agreed. Oh, shoot. It's 8 o'clock. Right, you guys have anything else? Kind of last minute. I think uh, Thursday, 
we're gonna next Thursday we'll do um we'll do the doctrine of hell. We'll go through all of the different concepts of hell within Christianity, within Judaism, and then within any of the Near Ancient Eastern religions that were within proximity. Because the reality, the truth, is that a lot of what we have was pulled from paganism to, to a point, but other religions in the area, other stories of the time. So we have to look at all of it. But we'll, we'll go into what is hell? What is Sheol? But specifically, what is hell? Is it a physical place? What does the Bible say about hell? We'll go through every single instance of a reference to hell. We'll go super deep, super deep into the, the entire concept of what hell is, what it means for us, and how serious should we take it considering the information that we have, and how it changed over time. Because Christians did not believe about hell what they believe today several hundred years ago. In any sense, it's drastically different. How is God's good mixed in with an evil man's theology that helped pave way to today's Christianity? I, I think, I, I my opinion, here's another hot one, Mikhail, that you're going to tell me to be careful about. I believe all of Christianity is evil to a point. I, like very, very early on, Christianity as a system be, began doing evil things. Like pretty quick after the early church. It just kind of is what it is. Christian history is what it is. We can lie about it. We can be blind to it. That's fine. I, I can't take that approach. My brain doesn't work that way. Christianity has always been engaged in evil to one degree or another. It's just, is it justified evil or is it not justified evil? The odd thing is, is Christianity is run by people who are arrogant and self-righteous. It always has been. Always has been. That's why you have all of these different denominations of Christianity. And Martin Luther is no different. And Calvin's no different. Does that mean they're evil? No, I would push back against that. But like they did evil for sure. But so did every group of Christians specifically early on. It was full of evil. Not Christianity. More people entity. Yeah, yeah, true. Thank God for Martin Luther relieved my Catholic guilt. For sure, but he's not without blemish, man. Martin Luther did some stuff too. St. John Paul, hell is other people. Yes. Yes. I said, just the blinders need to come off. Like, we just need to be honest about all this stuff. That's That's been my biggest gripe. It's why I left Christianity for a while, because I just felt like everybody's blind and was just lying all the time. Was either ignorant because they didn't care to know the truth about our history, or was blind and was incapable of understanding that the Christian faith is built on bodies. That's the truth. It's the reality. We don't have to like it, but we do have to acknowledge it and be honest about it. The Bible, not perfect. Don't have to like it, but you have to be honest about it. And then you can get to a better place of, of really truly having a faith that you believe in because you're not lying to yourself anymore. All right, guys, I, I got to run. It's eight. We did two hours. I got to go uh, say goodnight to the kiddo because I'm sure she's already in bed. But uh, Sunday night, we're finishing Acts. 
And then I believe we're doing Enoch, but I'm going to post a poll, but it seems like everybody wants to do Enoch. So Sunday night, we've got, I believe it's 27 and 28, I think, because the axe only goes till 28. And then next Thursday, we'll do hell. And then next Sunday, we'll be starting whatever the new book is. So if you've been on the line with the Bible study, this is a good reset point. We're starting a brand new book, not not in two days, but the following Sunday. Everything will be posted on Discord. The poll where you can vote for what book we go into uh, for the next couple months, probably, will be on Discord uh, sometime this week. Sometime this week. So we'll get that all figured out. We'll get it decided. This was a good conversation. It's tough stuff, man. And I hope I hope nobody's actually scared. Some people in Discord were saying it made them uncomfortable. Don't don't be uncomfortable. This this is good stuff to talk about. It's super important. I'm living in a paradise heaven, but I like the backyard earth. Shannon, have a lovely evening. Kat and I are trying to pick a time, by the way, a time and a day. Her and I ended up having to go do something yesterday that was uh, very heavy, but we have not forgotten about you, just so you know. All right, I'm going, going, going. I love y'all. I will uh, see you in Discord, and we'll uh, we'll throw the poll out for for the next book of the Bible. Hell next Thursday, though. Administrative decision.